Sam, yeah, I, I know you really like the movie, but I don't think this whole silent podcast thing's a good idea. I think you're right. In that case, welcome back to Alpha Film Bet. This is episode three. I'm Sam. And I'm Alec. And I rest assured, we will, we will talk today. We'll probably talk too much. <laughs> In today's episode, we will be discussing City Lights by Charlie Chaplin. Um, have you seen any Charlie Chaplin movies, Sam? I have. I have seen, uh, I saw Modern Times yeah. at a film festival. Really? Quite a few years ago. What film festival? Uh, it was in Providence. I'm assuming it was called the Providence Film Providence Festival. Providence Film Festival. It, it was guess. like probably 10 years ago. That'd be a good guess. 10 <laughs> years ago. So you probably don't even remember it very well. I, I remember certain certain parts. Yeah. I've only seen certain parts of that movie. Actually, I've seen probably bits and pieces of all his famous movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say City Lights, probably one of the big three for Charlie Chaplin. City Lights, really? uh, Modern Times, and uh, The Great Dictator. And I have seen uh, the entirety of The Great Dictator. It is, it's very great. Fascist yeah. satire. I, I had definitely seen clips from uh, The Great Dictator, but I, I really knew next to nothing about City Lights for some reason. Me, me, me either. It's, like I, I, don't even, I don't even think I'd, I had seen any of the scenes from it, to be I, honest. I, I'd heard of it, but other than that, I knew very little about the plot or the themes or anything. Yeah, so, I mean, he's considered probably the most significant silent film actor and filmmaker uh of all time yeah I, I think in a lot of ways silent film and charlie chaplin really it's just go together synonymous right i think when a lot of people if, if you said silent film to someone a charlie chaplin film would probably or they would describe first. the little short man with the bowler hat <laughs> and the mustache right <laughs> dancing around and throwing his body everywhere which we will discuss but yeah his his physical comedy is impeccable mm-hmm. it is impeccable yeah. um probably the best ever do it so this is the part of the episode where we go over a, a fairly detailed plot summary um the, out of the three episodes we've watched so far this is definitely the most famous movie even if you're not into silent films i think we'll say off the bat we both recommend you watch this it is yeah. it is one of the best it's Def- excellent definitely more well known than blue steel i think is a safe assumption uh i don't know you never know uh, no, that's that. I that, think that, we do know. That, yeah, we probably do know. But that said, we will be going to spoilers. So if you ever want to watch this movie, it will be spoiled right now. In a city that we never find out its name, uh, it's reportedly kind of a visual hodgepodge of a variety of cities. Paris, L.A., Naples, London, and, and weirdly, Council Bluffs, Iowa. A collection of people gather around as the mayor of the city unintelligibly presents the unveiling of a monument, which is called Peace and Prosperity. The people are shocked when they see a homeless tramp which, by the way, is the name of Charlie Chaplin's uh, most famous character. He kind of sort of plays the same character in most of his silent uh, features. Resting on the statue, sleeping, basically, he wakes and humorously attempts to climb off. Later, he is teased by two newspaper boys uh, and nearly falls into a mechanized sidewalk elevator while he's admiring a nude statue. The little tramp meets an attractive, young, blind woman selling flowers on the street and falls in love. As he leaves, she hears a wealthy man enter a vehicle and takes this to mean that the mysterious stranger is a rich gentleman. She goes home and greets her grandmother who lives with her in a romantic trance. The tramp stumbles upon a drunk, depressed millionaire and saves him from drowning himself in a river. The two bond back at the millionaire's house where the tramp saves them from another suicide attempt and then they continue their lavish partying through the night at a music hall. 
After drunkenly driving the millionaire's Rolls Royce back home the next morning, the tramp sees the flower girl. He asks for money from his new friend and buys all of the girl's flowers. He then drives her home in the fancy car. She promises to see him again whenever he'd like. Returning to the millionaire's home, the little tramp finds him sober with no memory of the previous night's exploits. He refuses to grant the tramp entry. Upset, he steals the millionaire's car, assaults and takes a random man's cigarette, and pompously returns the vehicle. Meanwhile, the flower girl talks to her grandma about her wealthy suitor. That same day, the tramp bumps into the millionaire on the street, intoxicated once again. Inexplicably, he now remembers the tramp and their adventure and brings him home for a luxurious party. The next morning, the millionaire and tramp wake up in the same bed together. Soberly forgetting all about his existence once again, the millionaire kicks him out. So the gag is kind of that anytime he's sober, he doesn't remember, but when he gets drunk, all of his memories of the little tramp return. Which is definitely how it works. <laughs> Not seeing the girl at her flower selling corner, the tramp goes to her apartment and finds her sick in bed. He resolves to get a job as a street sweeper to help pay for her recovery. We also find out that the women face eviction from their apartment, which the grandma hides from her granddaughter. On a lunch break, the tramp accidentally uses his co-worker's cheese as soap, so the man eats soap. Classic. After being told to return in a timely manner, the tramp flees to see his blind lover, bringing her groceries and reading to her from a newspaper. The story involves the curing of a person's blindness. This gets the girl's hopes up, dreaming of seeing her boyfriend's face. The tramp finds the eviction notices and promises to pay the rent for them. Returning to his job, the tramp is fired for tardiness. With no other choice, he accepts a boxer's illicit offer to stage a fight and split the prize money. However, when he receives a telegram that the police are searching him and flees, the tramp is matched with a more intense fighter. In spite of his efforts, the tramp loses. It's a very entertaining scene. One of the best. Reuniting with the drunken millionaire once again, the little tramp asks him for money for the girl. He agrees, giving him $1,000, which is more than $20,000 today. Unfortunately, the house is at that moment robbed by burglars who knock the millionaire unconscious. The tramp is able to call the police, but not before the burglars steal the rest of the millionaire's cash and flee. Stuck with the bills of a rich man who, after being bopped in the head, does not remember him once again, the tramp is incriminated. He cleverly evades the police and the next day returns to his lover. He gives her the money and informs her he's leaving for a long time, breaking her heart. He's then arrested by the police and sent to prison. Several months later, the young woman has established her own thriving flower shop with the money he gave her and has also received surgery to cure her blindness. She watches a young, handsome, rich man enter her shop, and she briefly considers if he may be her previous suitor. The tramp, released and penniless, has a skirmish with the rude newsboys and picks up a decayed flower from the street. Turning, he's shocked to find himself staring at his lover through her shop's glass window. Not recognizing him, of course, she offers him a fresh flower, meeting him outside and grabbing his hand as he tries to leave. She immediately recognizes the feeling of his hands. The tramp asks if she can see now. She confirms that she can. They emotionally stare into each other's eyes. The end. Very beautiful and very famous sequence. Mm -hmm. So we decided to go with this uh, this famous silent movie for this one, as opposed to a few other options uh, like Quaron's Children of Men, for example, um, because the last two podcasts ended up being pretty thematically intense, <laughs> and we were hoping for a bit of an easier one. Um, do you think this one is a little bit less tricky, Sam? I, th I think it's definitely less tricky. There, d there did end up uh, being some themes that were 
not as lighthearted as we thought. I mean, are you talking about the suicide or the alcoholism or the tragic love affair? One of those ones? Yeah, to to name a few, yeah. Um, (laughs) But somehow all these dark themes are portrayed in a humorous manner, too. Yeah. It's a black comedy, I would argue. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which is pretty interesting, and uh, I think maybe a, a, a hallmark of Charlie Chaplin's movies. He, does, he definitely doesn't shy away from addressing uh, very grave and relevant social themes, relevant back then and uh, still relevant today. Um, also maybe worth mentioning is the time period that this came out in. Yeah, uh, 1931. Maybe the height of the Great Depression. Right. Most of the of the settings that Charlie Chaplin is, is uh, sort of interacting with, it's very high society. The, the city is, it, it looks like it's sort of thriving. Like, I, I wouldn't have guessed that a, a depression was going on. I mean, obviously, it's, it's a film set, but Agreed, I definitely. wouldn't have guessed that it was, um, it would have taken place during that time unless I knew the context. Right. Well, maybe it doesn't take place at that time. I, I, I almost wondered during it whether he was trying to hearken back to the, the lavishness of the 1920s. Right. Um, I mean, one thing I noticed was that th- there's sort of this consistent theme where he, he's he's sort of this humorous, unserious guy in this high, mature society. And that, that can lead to a lot of the of the funny antics that we see. Right, the irony. That, right, right. So of his being definitely lower on the social uh, totem pole. Right, he's sort of like the, the anti-rich guy. Yeah, it's, it's, it, the movie is full of these kind of social paradoxes. Right, he's like the direct opposition. But yeah, being released in the Great Depression, it, it makes me wonder if this was acting as a bit of levity for the audiences of the early 1930s, which I'm sure was sorely needed because of the economic crises. Speaking of economic crises, we do see that the grandmother and her granddaughter, who is the romantic interest of Charlie Chaplin in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, are struggling financially, which actually ends up being one of the principal motivations for Charlie Chaplin's character in the movie. Right. Yeah. I so mean, there is that interesting reflection there. Yeah. Now, now that I'm, I'm thinking about it, money is pretty much the, the reason why the entire story unfolds. Maybe uh, after further conversation, maybe it, maybe it is more about the depression than we thought. Yeah. From what I've been seeing about people's uh, opinions of this movie, there's, there's definitely a bit of a conversation involving how he intertwines those more serious and realistic elements with the romanticism of it all Mm -hmm. because he's definitely not shying away from these uh, dark social, economic, uh, even political themes at the beginning. It looks like he's almost making fun of politicians. Um, He's not shying away from those darker themes while still conveying a a certain sense of optimism and hope for the future. I mean, at the end of the day, this is still a a hopeful sort of romance story he, he sort of he, he manages to cap this off as sort of a traditional sort of older fashion feeling movie, I, despite I, having all these you know social commentary themes i totally i totally agree that it it ends in a way that you could consider a traditional uh hollywood ending yeah. um but in almost every other way i don't know if i would consider this movie traditional or conventional yeah. anyway yeah. i mean look at it i mean he's not a traditional leading man charlie Chaplin. Right, that's he's, for sure he's i mean one of the one of the he's such an iconic look as you can tell by his long-lasting uh, fame throughout cinematic history. But at the same time, he's not a traditional leading man. He's not attractive. <laughs> I, he's not traditionally attractive. Subjective. It's subjective, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a theme, too, because the, the, the fact that for a woman to fall in love with him, she has to be literally blind. Exactly. And uh, she obviously has a type of disability that we don't see a lot in conventional Hollywood uh, motion pictures. 
She right, did, especially she, back then. Especially not back then, and especially not in these kind of uh, rom-coms. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would classify this movie as a rom-com with sure. dramatic elements yeah, okay. that are all played for humor. Right. Um, but yeah, the fact that she's blind and then the ending thesis, I can see you now. And even though he's not conventionally handsome, she still loves him because she fell in love with him uh, before she could see. Right. And in a, in a sense, she always saw him, um, which is a little bit, I guess you could say, twee yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, sim- or, or, or simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an optimistic message that's been very long lasting and seemingly effective for a lot of people. And it worked for me. Yeah, definitely works. Do you think, do you think you felt any pressure from other films of the time to include that, that romantic, you know, sort of perfect cap at the end? Maybe, but I, like I was saying, I don't, I don't think he wanted to aim for a completely realist or a bittersweet conclusion. It reminded me towards the end of a, a really famous French musical called The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which was 30 years after this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had a similar, very bittersweet ending of a, 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 a man having to leave for a long time and then coming back and reuniting with his previous love interest. Um, right. That's a very classic uh, traditional Hollywood type thing. Right. It, it was very similar, though, because she also had a, a type of shop, like a Main Street uh, glass window type shop. So that's okay. kind of the visual imagery uh, in combination with like the story. Was she blind? <laughs> She was not blind. And it was uh, not to spoil the umbrella of Cherbourg. Yeah, please don't. Um, I mean, I kind of have to because this is the point that I'm making. It's it's not, right, small spoilers for this movie, it's not a, a conventionally happy ending. It's more it's more bittersweet. Okay. So in that way, the movies differ. And I don't think that Charlie Chaplin wanted to end it in any any less romantic way. Right. Because I mean, why, why, did, why did audiences go to the movies back then? Probably to be entertained and right. to escape their dreary lives. Yeah, and it's a comedy, so no one wants to leave a comedy when the couple doesn't get together. Exactly. I mean, how depressing would that be if so, she decided that she didn't like him after he essentially cured her blindness? Yeah, right, because uh, he gave her the money. Right. So <laughs> That's so kind of the only way to end it. In this honest. way, it's it's romantic enough to get audiences to come to the theater, but also still incorporating enough realist uh, messages and uh, plot elements to kind of say something about the society that they were living in. So kind of the best of both wor- worlds, which is pretty rare, actually, I feel like. Yeah. A lot of movies try to do two kind of paradoxical things at once and fail, mm-hmm. as we saw last week. Right. But, but, yeah. And do you think, I know we discussed that money was a big theme. Do you think that this movie has any uh, message for or against capitalism? <laughs> he, he's faced with not having money, and then he, he sort of attempts to, to participate in the system of capitalism. And he ends up failing every time. And eventually he has to resort to stealing from the rich to, I mean, not directly stealing, but <laughs> kind of stealing. He spends most of the movie trying to make an earnest living to get money for the blindness surgery. And eventually he, he sort of gives up on that and decides to go against the system instead. So I guess you could say that that's a commentary on on. Right. Attempting to participate, but then giving up on capitalism because it's not realistic always. I mean, there's also the element where he, he got the money because he happened to uh, become friends with a, a millionaire. Right, which is, I guess, was just lucky. Right. Which is another way that you can succeed, I guess. The only way to make it in life is to have good friends. It's, this is a movie about networking. <laughs> <laughs> this movie, I mean, it excels in all the ways that a silent film 
should and and can succeed. I think it's like the epitome of the genre. Basically, it's yeah. it's amazing. I think we we read that this was this was late for a silent film. This was I think you said that sound films had already existed. First sound film that already came out it was called The Jazz Singer. Mm-hmm. The transition from silent film to dialogue film it was a big thing, and and it was a conscious choice on Chaplin's uh, part to make this a a silent film. And right. I did I I did some thinking about whether uh, it it would have worked better as a dialogue film. And I, I, I really, I don't think it would. I don't know what your opinion is on that, but I, I feel like the audience would be too hyper-attentive to uh, his voice and his dialogue and whether he's being convincing enough to play a wealthy man like he does throughout the movie. Um, whereas, because it's silent, the audience is more focused on the kind of the physiognomy of the characters, their facial expressions, yeah. and the emotionality conveyed through that in addition to their physical movements and how they're physically uh, expressing themselves, which I think works a lot better that way. I don't know what your opinion is on that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that point, that you, you definitely notice the physical, the movements of the characters, which are, by the way, extremely entertaining and funny, and then the music and the sound effects, which is also another thing I want to talk about. I think this is probably a pretty early use of sound effects in film. It's really funny. Like there, There's so many sound effects that it's probably one of the first times they, they used them, but they're so iconic now. Mm-hmm. Whether that's like crashes or like like swooshes and all the classic uh, cartoon sound effects that right. we know today, right? The staple. And this movie does feel a lot of the time like a live action cartoon because I mean, what are cartoons if not silent films, animated right. silent films? Right, that's a good point. And Charlie Chaplin's Tramp is very much an animated character. <laughs> he um, he. I don't think there's very few frames of this movie where he's not in motion in some way. And yeah. I, you kind of needed to, to convey what's going on or, or to, to capture the audience's attention without dialogue. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned the sets on this movie, mm-hmm. um, and they're all meticulously crafted and designed. The props, uh, the sets, and then also the blocking of the actors is so controlled and specific. Even the extras. Like, I was just, for part of this movie, I was just watching the extras acting because they're equally animated, equally lively as Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. So some really great directing and craft. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, there's a new Disney Plus original movie about like a prom night or something. I can't remember what it's called. But it, it was a whole big thing because they used CGI background characters right behind the, the main cast. And people were upset about that because it's it's taking away work from real actors and it just feels a little bit... And it's just so genuine. obviously worse. Right. And then And then you look at this movie which is proof that it does make a difference. Some of the best extra work and directing I've ever seen. Yeah. That's a whole that's a whole other conversation about the use of CGI and artificial intelligence to replace physical elements of filmmaking. Yeah. Not great. Let's just say that. Let's just leave it there. Okay. okay, so now we are going to get into what we thought of the movie, our own opinions, and talk about that. So I liked it. I thought it was genuinely pretty funny. I did think it was a little bit slow at times, but yeah, I'm sure it was was perfectly well paced for the 1930s, but I think the pacing was a little bit slow now. By the end, it was a, a heartwarming story, and as we said before, just the unique style of physical comedy that you don't really see anymore, that's, that, that was really standout for me, and I thought it was really funny. I agree. That's a pretty good criticism. Even though the movie is on the short side, uh, I think some of his other movies are actually even longer. So maybe mm-hmm. maybe you wouldn't actually be a fan of his other, right. <laughs> his other movies. Um, but I feel like a lot of silent films tend to, be, tend to be on the shorter side, at least, for right. the most part. 
Um, yeah, no, I, this movie is a ton of fun. My experience with the silent film genre in general is not extensive. Like I said, I, I've seen some, but not, not a lot, uh, especially not from that era. But obviously I can see why Chaplin is considered one of the best silent filmmakers and film stars simult simultaneously, right. uh, jack of all trades that there has ever been. Mm -hmm. Just his overall joyful presence, the level of animation in his body movements, and then also his unwillingness as a filmmaker uh, to back away from the more serious and, and emotional themes while still remaining romantic and uh, optimistic. I, it really worked for me. I think that he tackled both of those very well. And yeah, the physical comedy was top-notch, as you were saying. Some really, really hilarious, classic uh, 1930 set pieces. Yeah. The boxing scene, I don't know if we mentioned. And him almost falling in the elevator at the beginning, at, on the sidewalk. That was a funny thing. Yeah. He had a lot of, a lot of uh, classic moments, I'm sure. Criticism that I had written down was maybe he was getting a bit repetitive with that rich man forgetting him and remembering him gag. Uh, I think we would have gotten after maybe like two times. Yeah, that ended up being a major plot point. A major actually. plot point. That also, it took me out of it a little bit because it doesn't make any sense that he would just immediately remember him once he got drunk. Right. <laughs> Obviously, silent films don't need to always adhere to real world logic, but I think maybe part of it is because he was tackling so many real world themes and how dramatic he played the ending scene and all that. Um, right. Maybe that's why it took me out of it. Um, so n not my favorite part of the movie, but it worked and it was humorous and it, it was fine. Yeah, I'm glad we both liked it. But yeah, like I said, that's maybe a bit of a nitpick. And yeah, I just overall, I, I really enjoyed it. Nice. One of the best out of the limited silent films that I've seen, maybe the best. Really? Okay, nice. I think so. Now we're going to discuss some other reviews of the movie that we found. Uh, Sam found these today. I think he found them from Letterboxd and then also from some professional critics as well. Yeah, a few of each. So this is from Keith on Letterboxd, who rated this three and a half stars out of five. He says, A lighthearted comedy about homelessness, suicide, disability, manic depression, substance abuse, handguns, bipolar disorder, drunk driving, robbery, rheumatic fever, incarceration ladies and gentlemen the 1930s 1930s so, that's <laughs> that, funny that, that's sort of what we've been talking about sort of i don't know if i would argue that the movie's about all of those things it's certainly about mm -hmm. a lot of them but like would you say the movie is about drunk driving it's it's, it's a, a <laughs> no, comedic it's not, feature it's that th this is obviously a, a yeah an over dramatic take on the film to be funny on yeah also, it depends on, yeah it depends but um but yeah thematically i could see how these all play in and, and that last line, ladies and gentlemen, the 1930s, that's sort of what we were talking about in terms of the, the depression. Right. It wasn't a great time to be an American. Right. So like the hard themes. Uh, this is from uh, Valdemar LB on Letterboxd, who gave the movie three stars. And his review is, uh, quote, funny sound effect, unquote. It's a good one. Powerful. Yeah, that really says it all. <laughs> From Josh Lewis on Letterboxd, give it five stars. A farcical and romantic vision of a world where appearances, class, and suffering can be overcome by the simplest, clumsiest expressions of kindness, even if only briefly. So I guess he's saying that the uh, more romantic themes uh, sort of overcome the 
more serious uh, struggles of the times. Yeah, I love this review. I think it's perfectly uh, worded. I'm pretty sure I liked this on Letterboxd. <laughs> I did want to ask you, though, what do you think that last sentence is implying, even if only briefly? Is it is it implying that he doesn't uh, he doesn't think that their romance is going to work out in the end? Because that's a, definitely a more pessimistic interpretation of the ending. Mm, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he's saying that. I think he's just saying that this is only one small story in a, a, a period that was obviously on a large scale not great. So this is just one small part of a bigger issue. Right. Maybe that's what he means by briefly. I like, yeah, I like that analysis. Like a brief refuge from the dark and scary world that we live right. in. Right, yeah, especially, actually, that, that's a good point considering that this movie came out in 1931 too. It's not just set during that time. Right. So maybe going to the theater to experience this romantic story and this comedic story was a good escape from those times for the audience too. Yeah, so uh, a beautiful escapist reading of, of City Lights by Josh Lewis. Yeah. So this one is from a critic, uh, Scott Tobias, who writes for The Dissolve. Uh, quote, there's dignity and folly to the tramp in City Lights and everything in between. Another, uh, another paradoxical interpretation of, of the tramp's character. He's uh, obviously full of folly. That's, mm-hmm. that's the physical comedy of his character. But also has, has a sense of dignity and, and pride. Uh, he, he's like really disturbed when... <laughs> when the millionaire doesn't remember him and like rebukes him and kicks him out. And then obviously he, he wins the girl in the end through his dignity and his uh, uh, his chivalry. Right. His chivalry. So this is the only critical review that uh, we have. Uh, this is from Zita Short with In Session Film. She says, That famous final scene didn't leave me crying my eyes out because the two main characters were thinly drawn archetypes and their bond did not seem to mean anything. That's something I would I would disagree with as far as not meeting anything. Yeah, I think somehow in that simplicity he says he says quite a lot, mm-hmm. um, and I think maybe that I'm just trying to be optimistic, <laughs> but also by nature I think it's difficult for the silent film genre to have characters that aren't archetypes. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's it could be done, but that's not like that's not Charlie Chaplin's mo. It, his characters need to be broadly drawn because it's broad humor. Right. Right? I don't see how you convey uh, subtlety um, with no dialogue. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So not, not fully not fully vibing with Zita on that one. Right. Sorry, sorry, Zita. And then finally, uh, this is from uh, critic Dan Jardine, uh, who writes for Slant Magazine. He says, this is one of those rare creatures, the work of a master craftsman in full control of his craft. And we commented on how how uh, meticulous the craft is in this movie, um, maybe deceptively so. He makes right. it look, he makes it look easy, but it's not. Right. Yeah. So I chose this one because I I wanted to talk about um, and this is something that I don't know much about. Would you say that this is the peak of of Charlie Chaplin's career, or is this more towards the end? Or so looking at his filmography, we can see that. Uh, this movie came out in 1931, of course, and then five years later, he came out with Modern Times. And then uh, four years after that, he came out with The Great Dictator. Maybe you could argue that that, like, under 10-year period was the height of his career, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, he did go on to make a few movies after, but but from what I can see, they're not nearly as renowned as the those big three movies there. Actually, I, I looked this up earlier. I looked up uh, what's the first appearance of The Little Tramp, who is the character he often plays in talent films. And it was um, Kid Auto Races at Venice. And that was 1914. So that's the first time Charlie Chaplin played uh, the little tramp. So at this point, he had been perfecting that character for 
almost 20 years. It's actually really interesting to me that he played the same character in every movie. I guess I, I had always known that, but I hadn't like really thought about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's a consistency to it that I wonder if contributed to him becoming such a such a recognizable image. I think that's I think that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it, it sort of reminds me how, how modern actors kind of like to choose the same type of role. Uh, mm-hmm. Like Ryan Reynolds pops to mind. Right. They like to go for their like, right. consistent image. Yeah, actually, that 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 the that sort of reminds me of how actors today will play like a Marvel superhero for for ten, fifteen years. Yeah, and and they 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 play the same character in every movie. I, I wonder if you could argue that uh, Charlie Chaplin had the first cinematic universe. <laughs> I think you could. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, moving on to words of the week, where we choose five words each that that begin with the letter of the week, which you probably figured out by now is uh, C, because Charlie Chaplin, City Lights, actually, right. the rare triple triple C, right? Not triple, quadruple, but triple letter. I don't think we're gonna get there, but yeah, maybe we'll get a quadruple at triple some C. point. C C C. My first word that I chose for this week is courting, just because of the very cute another C word right there. I uh, hope, you, hope you weren't going to say that, so... It was an alternate. Just because of the very cute romance between the tramp and the flower girl and how he courts her in the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say comical for obvious reasons. I Like I said before, I think this movie still holds up to different but effective comical standards to this day. Second word is cheese. Not because <laughs> I found the film uh, cheesy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that. But because of the great scene that I think might have been the scene that made me and Sam laugh the most, which is where uh, he uses the co-worker's cheese as hand soap, and then the co-worker eats the soap. Yeah, got a good kick out of that one. We got a good kick out of that one. <laughs> uh, my next word is crazy, because I feel like all the characters are a little bit little bit crazy, and just all the antics and, and the, the way things happen Probably. in this cartoon style, which is another C word, is crazy. My third word is creative Mm. Uh, because I found not only the plot and the characters to be uh, very creative, uh, the individual scenes as well, uh, and the plotting of those, and also the set building for the most part to be. My next word is city, not only because of the title, but because it takes place entirely in a city, and that's really the, the, the city sort of becomes very involved with a lot of the the plot points. Right. Yeah. Well, the whole. The it's whole, very act. It's a very. It, 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 they never it's leave. It's sort of like an alive feeling set, the city. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about it. Out of our three episodes, two of them uh, had the word city in them. Oh, yeah. And two of them take place in the city. Two of them. It's, it's kind <laughs> of ironic because the asteroid city is absolutely not a cityscape uh, setting. Right. Completely different kinds of cities. What, what uh, a crossover between asteroid city uh, and city lights would look like. <laughs> Asteroid City Lights. Oh, that'd be cool if Wes Anderson made like a 20s movie. Wes Anderson will never make a silent movie because his characters are very far from silent. Well, maybe at least not, now. Maybe not, maybe not silent. But like, at least now. I finally watched um, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, his new uh, short. We're talking about Wes Anderson again. His new short. <laughs> Can't resist. His new short film on Netflix. And there's very little moments in that movie where characters are not talking directly to the camera. Yeah. That's pretty much the entire short film. <laughs> Uh, I would say distractedly so. I think it was too much for me. But this is not a Wes Anderson podcast. (laughs) We already did that. And if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. So uh, kind of in a similar vein, my fourth word that I chose is caricature. 
Mm. Um, because, uh, like Zeta was pointing out, the characters are very broad um, uh, and caricature-like, just like the comedy is broad as well, um, which was just Charlie Chaplin's style. The Tramp is a caricature. Yeah, and that's a great perfectly one. so. Yeah. Uh, my next one is Cool, because I think it's a cool movie, and I think the I think the a lot of the the more technical elements are cool. I think the the set design is great. I think the costumes, especially, are really cool. Especially watching it, you know, almost a hundred years later, it was just cool to see such an old movie. Right. A hundred year old movies can be cool too, guys. We need to stop discounting movies just because they're black and white or have no dialogue. All right. I can see why it might be a hurdle to jump over, especially the dialogue part. Mm-hmm. Um, but people need to watch more black and white movies. There's some really amazing movies that are filmed in black and white. Yeah. And for my final word, Sam has one more after this, but my final word is going to be childlike. Um, mm. Because, like we said, the Tramp's character is a caricature, but also he is, is very uh, simple uh, in his presentation and his mannerisms and uh, very innocent in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of that has to do with the the silent film uh, template and genre as it is. But um, in that way, all the characters kind of reflect this like childlike simplicity. Um, and even the moral of the movie, like we talked about, is is simple in that way um, and effective. Right. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Definitely. I think a, a child could watch this and still enjoy it. Right. It, which, could, it appeals to children too. Right. And I, I guess you could say that audiences back then were. Uh, not weren't simpler, but they had they had more simple expectations for going to the cinema and watching a film. So my final word is cash, because ca- the the cash uh, that the blind girl needs it is basically what drives the entire plot of the movie. Right, and, and so, the economic needs of the blind girl. Right. Yeah. So that that cash is very important in this movie. An important prop. Yeah. And plot device. Yeah. So that is what we had to say about City Lights by the famous Charlie Chaplin. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to reach out with any comments or questions or uh, recommendations, you can reach us at alfilmbet at gmail.com. We also have a few uh, polls on our Spotify page if you want to interact with the episode that you just listened to. We have them for our past two episodes as well. So our next episode in uh, roughly two weeks, I think we're decided to talk about uh, the Brian De Palma film Dressed to Kill. Uh, it is horror-themed, so that should fit with the Halloween spirit. If anyone out there is interested in um, in watching this movie ahead of time and then emailing us your thoughts, yeah, we please will... Please do. Please do. We will, uh, of course, read those thoughts out during the other review section of our show. Yeah. Uh, happily. So if you want to be in the next podcast, watch the movie. Uh, again, that's alfilmbet at gmail.com. Should be easy to remember. And I think that that is it for today. Yeah. Got anything else, Sam? I think we're all set. See you for Dressed to Kill. See you for Dressed to Kill.